Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Judge Gail Williams Byers of the South Euclid, Ohio Municipal Court. We're talking about the Derek Chauvin trial and the racial repercussions of the George Floyd killing. We also talk about racial trauma being experienced as a result of other recent incidents with police. Judge Byers, uh, you and I have talked uh, off mic about this case uh, over the last several weeks, but uh, for our listeners, as a black woman judge in South Euclid, Ohio, what's at stake with this trial? Well, Tom, I appreciate the the opportunity to have this conversation, but I see that um, as the the trial of um, former officer um, Chauvin draws to a close, I I believe there's so much at stake just nationally. I believe that our entire justice system as a whole is on trial. I believe that faith in the justice system, how it works, and how that system works for all who are held accountable under it is what's at stake. I think that it's been important that it's been as transparent as it has been. But even inside of that transparency, what is so important and what hangs in the balance is the outcome and how that outcome is going to be received and articulated and what does accountability look like in the face of what at least is perceived to be overwhelming evidence one way or another. And so uh, I I just genuinely believe um, that the very definition of justice versus just us is what is at stake. In addition to that, as a, I think as a, a fallout, if you will, from that, it is no doubt going to be um, how or if we will see um, a peaceful response and who will actually be able to garner the voice to help maintain that that peace, especially in light of what we continue to see 
by way of sustained, continued, perpetuated behavior similar to what has given rise to this trial itself. It seems that behavior continues. And so not only is justice on trial, but the ability to maintain peace nationally um, and even locally is what I believe is, is most at stake. So it's troubling. Recently, we've had the Dante Wright case and the Adam Toledo case. And how do these cases mesh with the Chauvin case and the George Floyd case? And do they amp up the public expectation of the case that we're hearing now? Well, I, I think what has to be understood is that, you know, the the case of, of Adam Toledo, the, the young um Latino um, boy in Chicago, the 13-year-old, and and young Dante Wright, the 20-year-old, um, whose case was you know barely 10 miles away from where the Chauvin case is taking place. Those are not um, cases that are you know in, in silos. No more than Ahmad Aubrey in in Georgia or Breonna Taylor is is in Kentucky, and and lest we forget. Lieutenant Nazario, who who perhaps himself barely escaped being counted among these same individuals, uh, this lieutenant, this army lieutenant, you know, may very well have met a similar fate, perhaps were he not in his military fatigues. And so these are cases are all, you know, parallel, if you will, to what is at least perceived to be very, very similar to the Chauvin case. And granted, what I'll say is that we don't know all the facts in all of these cases. And so I would be reluctant to say that they are all identical and that they are all, you know, seen through the exact same lens. But what I can say is that the emotional sentiment is very strikingly similar. And that is what is giving rise to much of the unrest. And we talk about the Dante uh, Wright case, and and uh, the the news this week was the the officer who has since resigned, along with the police chief of that suburban community, uh, mistake uh, made a mistake in in uh, thought it was her taser when it was in fact her gun. Uh, very few cases uh, in the country have had that kind of mistake. And not only is that jarring, um, the idea that a bright yellow taser could be mistaken for a Glock, a black Glock, after having served almost three decades as an officer. And, And what we've heard in the Chauvin trial is the very important, overwhelming importance of training, police training. And by the way, We've heard over and over again about how important it is to infuse local police departments with more and more and more resources, thereby ballooning budgets year after year after year with these resources so as to ensure that they have the adequate funding for this very thing, right? Training. Right. And when the investment is made, and I think that this is true across the board. 
when the investment is made, there's a reasonable expectation that there's an ROI, right? There's a return on investment. We invest in the training. We expect that you can actually, I don't know, utilize it. And so after almost three decades of training, no doubt there is such a thing as, yes, human error. But is there ever an expectation that that level of training should ever result in this type of error? Is that ever acceptable? That is absolutely a level of question and accountability that must be answered and responded to. But if I could go even a step further than that, because more than the issue of the taser versus the gun, I believe it's another issue that I think you and I perhaps as you know, attorneys and even judges have had to deal with in our profession, which is the whole issue of pretextual stops. Yes. Yes. You know, how do we how did we get to this juncture in the first place, right? How uh, do for, for our audience, a pretextual stop is when you stop someone for a, a extremely minor infraction, if any, uh, uh, with the idea that you're gonna get more. Exactly. And so it becomes that that cascading effect. So here, you know, if the idea is that it starts with the dangling air freshener that then moves to the expired tags that then moves to the, oh, yeah, now you've got the warrant. Do you see how the the cascading effect then moves on? And no doubt there is at least in in the society of of people of color and and particularly folks who are from underrepresented communities who clearly and for good reason now who trust the system the least are now the most afraid when they encounter police for almost any reason are the ones who are now targeted by this cascading effect. Think about it. I can't, now I can't even have an air freshener in my car. The air freshener is going to now be the cause for me to get pulled over. And we've had Tom, you and I have had these conversations. We've had the conversations about the talk. So now we can't even tell our kids to pull over into a lighted area. We can't tell them to stick their hands out the windows or just stay still. We can't tell them. We All the things we thought were the right things to do in these situations, we're learning even that isn't good enough. So parents are struggling. Folks are struggling to even know what do you tell them now to even get them home alive because nothing's working. In this instance, you if you can believe it, we've spent a year in a pandemic where Undoubtedly, government agencies have been shut down for long periods of time, causing all types of delays, all kinds of delays, including bureaus of motor vehicles. Right. These same government agencies have no doubt resulted, yes, in the delay of allowing some people to have valid stickers on their licenses in a timely manner. Why? Because in a pandemic environment, that has been the natural fallout. I think judges across the nation have found a way to appreciate that. And yet you have a 20-year-old young man who this time last week was alive. Yeah. And now is not because it is entirely possible 
that just like George Floyd may not have even known that his $20 bill was counterfeit. Maybe, maybe not. And you know what? A year or so ago, George Floyd was alive. Maybe with a counterfeit $20 bill that he never even knew was counterfeit. And this young man with a dangling air freshener who may not have even been able to cure something as simple as an expired tag because of a pandemic that was outside of his control and possibly even a government agency for whom he had no control over whether or not that issue could be cured. But then also consider the fact that for a young black man, we must ask ourselves, is it really necessary to pull someone over with a dangling air freshener and an expired tag with officers enveloping a vehicle on both sides, with officers prepared to draw weapons even if they're tasers? Is that necessary or is that only for black people? Because would that have been the experience of a young white man as well, let me just let me just say, you know, if if my tag was expired or a young white man's tag was expired, one, the officer would either have ignored it, or at worst, the officer would have made a stop and said, "Hey, your tag's expired. You really need to get this taken care of. I know things have been slow, but you know, take care of it in the next couple of weeks." Yeah, that that's all it would have been. At most, at, at most. most, at most, and and consider and now juxtapose that now and I'll even go a step further. Now juxtapose the experience of Dante Wright, who met his death over a dangling air freshener and an expired license plate. And, and a warrant that was issued from the court, which, by the way, there's still no determination as to, you know, whether or not did the young man know he had an outstanding warrant? Was he willfully avoiding the court? Did he, you know, was he issued a summons from the court? Did he move? Did, did he, you know, was his address current? There are an awful lot of unknowns. And I say that because, again, as as judges, have we not had that experience with yes. defendants? Yes. Oh God, yes. There, there so many warrants <laughs> are, are are bad warrants. Exactly. Uh, you, you know, know we that? we have people who have more stable email addresses than home addresses. That's right. That's and right. so, can we answer the unanswered first, and then start assigning all of this blame? Because again, there's so many, and we're talking about. Here's what's worse: we're talking about a low-level nonviolent offense, which at most would have netted what a fine, maybe. At most. Maybe a fine, and maybe not even that if he had had an opportunity to cure it. Perhaps it per may have even been dismissed if it were cured. But he met his death over an expired tag and a warrant for an offense that was never violent in the first place. And you juxtapose that to let's take our minds back to the young man who murdered how many black parishioners at a Bible study in South Carolina who was given a McDonald's meal after he was arrested. Yeah. Yeah. 
So talk about the, the disparate treatment. We can have slain black bodies in a Bible study in a church. And this white young man can be treated more tenderly and respectfully and actually fed after committing murder, murder. And here you have a young man who gets murdered over a dangling air freshener, an expired tag, and a outstanding warrant over a non violent, low-level offense at the hands of a nearly three-decade serving officer who apparently in this moment doesn't know the color yellow from black. Yeah. Well, I want to circle back to the societal disparities that we're talking about uh, in a bit, but I, I want to take advantage of your expertise. Uh, let's look at the Derek Chauvin trial, Judge, and let's try to break it down. You were a prosecutor for over a decade before you became judge. I was a defense attorney for a couple of decades. I'd like to break this trial down a little bit so people understand what the strategies have been, what they've really been seeing. And, and if you could, Judge, I'd like for you to look at this from the prosecution's point of view. What what strategy did the prosecution have to present the best case they could and to diminish the defense? What I would say from my perspective, um, perhaps in you know a nutshell, if you will, I think the, the prosecution did a very masterful job of first and foremost humanizing the experience. Um, They first began their case by essentially laying bare the emotional and human experience of the event itself. Quite frankly, the very first week of testimony was it was a form of just re-traumatization for any and everyone who saw the testimony and experienced it. But quite frankly, for every single eyewitness who was there and felt amazingly helpless to do anything as they watched this man's life leak out of him breath by breath by breath. And the strategy of doing that in the first week was what? Was to transport the jury into this experience instantly and to immediately humanize the jury, to have the jury feel the experience and to understand the experience of the bystanders, almost making the jury the bystanders themselves to understand the human nature of them and and to do that in a way again this is a, this is isn't so much as it's, a lot of it was fact and to portray and display the facts of what was taking place but i believe the the important thing was to 
essentially place the jury in that experience because every single one of them are individuals. And to have it happen so many times through the eyes of so many different people, but for their experiences to almost align perfectly, every single person pretty much giving the same testimony over and over and over again, um, can actually grip you emotionally. So much so that you, you heard pool reports that jurors some jurors really did have that emotional response. And that's, I think, was purposeful. That was necessary to play that video over and over for the jurors was necessary. The prosecution needs for the jury to understand, first and foremost, that George Floyd was a human being with every fault and Every challenge that he may have had, he was he was above everything. He was a human being. And in that moment, that human being was being absolutely barbarically treated in the eyes of the prosecution. And they wanted every single juror to understand what that barbarism looked like, what it sounded like with the pleas of every person who helplessly stood by and wanted to save him, what that experience was like. They needed that emotional part because they knew that a time would come when they would have to move into a more cerebral part or more academic part of the testimony. And that part gets a little, you know, boring, wonky, you know, really tedious. So they need to have captured another part of the jurors so that they can truly understand where that's the first linchpin to the case. And I think they did a very masterful job in doing that. It was they really set the stage. They, mm -hmm. they, they laid everything out and, and made this an emotional case from the get-go. I think that that was certainly a cornerstone of the foundation. Um, and I think that that was absolutely necessary. And in fact, if you'll notice that many of those witnesses were not cross-examined. Right, right. Because as a defense attorney, what good are you going to get out of them repeating the same thing over again? Uh, and perhaps even more emotionally. Uh, so that's where you cut your losses. In indeed. And and. Actually, I, I think, you know, from a defense standpoint, what you want to do is you want to get that witness off the stand as quickly as possible. Yeah, you 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 want to you you're you're sort of glad that they're early in in the case, and you want to get them on and off, and and so that perhaps with all the wonkiness that comes with the scientific and the medical stuff later, people forget about it. Indeed. That, and, that's your hope. Anyway. Yes. And from a prosecutor standpoint, you know, you're you're hoping that the defense will bite. You're hoping that they will ask just one or two questions and crack open another door because any new door or any new line of questioning that is opened with any of these emotional witnesses gives the the prosecution another opportunity to 
to pull in more of that emotional testimony and to bring the jurors in emotionally even more and to make sure that the jurors are where the prosecution needs them to be as human beings first and then academics next. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. So the next thing I want to ask you from, again, a prosecutor's standpoint, uh, you talked about them humanizing George Floyd. Um, I'd like for you to elaborate on that a, a bit. I take it that you're meaning that they're, they're saying this was not a saint. This was not a perfect individual. This was a flawed individual, but here are the flaws and and here's why they don't matter. Precisely. Because, I, and I, as a prosecutor, I approached every case actually with an eye toward what would the defense's best arguments be about the core of my case? Would it be to attack my, my victim or my core theory? And if it is, What's my best response to that? I was always a believer in the preemptive strike. We called it the Band-Aid theory. And there are two ways to approach a Band-Aid when you've got a, a sore or a bruise. You can either take it off a little bit at a time and just, you know, take those quick breaths and, you know, take it off and deal with the tiny little hurt that comes with it. Or you know what? You can take one deep breath, snatch that Band-Aid off, know that it's going to hurt for a bit. And you know what? Let the breath out. The hurt goes away after a while. And there you have it. I was always a proponent of the latter over the former. And reason being is because I believe that whatever it is that might have been, you know, unsavory, difficult, challenging, or even bad about your case, the prosecution was always better at getting it out first because also understanding that the prosecution has the burden of proof. It is their duty to these jurors to build trust. The only time they will ever get an opportunity to speak to jurors and have jurors speak back to them is during voir dire, which is the jury selection process at the very beginning. After the jurors are sworn in, there is no opportunity 
for the jurors to actually converse or speak back and forth with the prosecutors. And so that means that communication is by and large one way with the prosecutor. They have witnesses talking to jurors, but the trust that is built with the state that has the highest burden of proof is now only built through the way that testimony comes in and how testimony comes in. And so if there's ever the discovery of evidence or discovery of information that comes in to a case whereby the defense has to bring it out because it looks like the prosecution withheld it, that's, that to me has always been a recipe for almost a failing case because it leaves potentially the jury believing that the, the state is hiding something. And even if it's bad, even if it doesn't seem well, that's okay. Tell them. They will forgive you if you are straightforward. In this instance, the prosecution was very straightforward in admitting, listen, George Floyd is flawed. George Floyd struggled with an opioid addiction. It wasn't his intention. He was injured. He struggled with this problem and he struggled with a lot of problems. But you know what? In our society, that's not so taboo anymore. And I'm sure that the prosecution was willing to bet that there weren't too many jurors who didn't know somebody somewhere who had a same or similar struggle. And so to that end, George Floyd wasn't so dissimilar from someone that they knew or someone that wasn't too far removed from someone in their life. So it wasn't so you know, fantastical to believe that he is he's so different. No, actually, he's much the same as so many others that we know because it's such a common problem. And by them raising it in their case in chief, it steals the thunder of the defense to raise it as if the state is hiding. Oh, my gosh, did you know he had a drug problem? Well, the prosecution gets to say, well, yeah, we do. We already told them. And but we already told them that that's a non-issue. And so I would always, as a prosecutor, I'd bring that out first. And my one of my favorite things to tell jurors during a trial, and particularly in closing, is whenever I had a victim whose credibility was being challenged because they had a character flaw or a failing, is I would remind jurors who every single one of them remembers their own flaws and their own failings. And they remember that their charge here is not as George Floyd isn't on trial. His character isn't on trial. Even if he's imperfect, he's not on trial. He's he's the, the decedent. But I would remind them that, you know what, this is a justice system. And if justice were reserved for only the perfect among us, I would ask jurors who among us would get it because it requires them to sort of look inside themselves and say, well, you know what? My gosh, if George Floyd is required to be perfect and he couldn't get justice, my goodness, if I were in his shoes, I know I got some skeletons. Matter of fact, I got a whole cemetery in my closet. And so if something happened to me, I probably wouldn't get justice either. And so it, it 
it disabuses them of that entire notion that he must be perfect in order for us to deliver justice. Then the prosecution followed up with other police officers and, and police administrators saying that this was not in accordance with with policy. And then uh, the the final blow was the, the medical testimony uh, in this, showing that uh, the cause of death was, in fact, the, the knee on, on, on the, the neck. But it looked like to me that this was pretty orchestrated by the prosecution. You lay out the emotion first. You then talk about George Floyd as a flawed individual. You then bring on police and say what Derek Chauvin did was beyond the pale. And then you have the medical testimony. And, and again, I thought that you know, every day isn't going to be a perfect day for the prosecution and trial. There are going to be missteps for every commentator that, you know, had thoughts and critiques day after day. You know, this is a lengthy marathon and it is draining. Um, I'd like to say, and I, and I think that perhaps you could agree that um, litigation is absolutely draining. It is sometimes more draining than any physical work you could ever do. It's the highest form of competition. It's like Roman gladiators. It is. It Uh, is. It requires quick thinking. It requires being able to, to change and to navigate and to be able to maneuver strategies, often on a dime to respond. I mean, if you're in the middle of direct examination and you hear something come up on cross-examination, you may have had a certain line of questioning prepared for redirect. And then there's something, there's a new line of questioning that develops out of cross-examination that you now have to reconfigure specifically for the purposes of redirect examination because it came up on cross-examination and so forth. And, And it goes back and forth depending on what side you're on. It really is, like you said, it is like, you know, it's verbal calisthenics. It is, you know, again, this mental, it, it is it's mental combat. battle. It, it, it's combat in a, in a, in a judicial forum. It's absolutely. And so you're absolutely right. And I'd like to know what you thought, because this is something that is rarely, if ever seen. And it's left me Really, um, I was really amazed at at the consistency that I saw because I don't know that we've ever, first, I don't think that we've ever seen a trial so transparent and so publicized where the officer is the defendant. I don't know that we've ever seen this before, but here's what I also don't know if we've ever seen before. And I wonder as a defense attorney, how did how would you prepare for this when there has always been the history of this strong blue wall? And so where there came the prosecutor's strategy to present an entire portion of their prosecution devoted strictly to policy, use of force policy, and to buttress that with essentially a parade of police officers like never before seen, that I think is absolutely unique, never before seen. How, as a defense attorney, do you prepare for that? 
Well, as as a defense attorney, uh, let me set the stage just a little bit because uh, our listeners have to know that the prosecution's burden in a case such as this is to prove all of the elements of each case beyond a reasonable doubt. And the prosecution has to convince all 12 jurors. In this state, in, in Minnesota, the jury verdict must be unanimous. All 12 jurors must decide guilty or it, it becomes a, a mistrial. So uh, all 12 jurors, that's a big burden for the prosecution. Unless they acquit and they find and, not guilty. And, and what, uh, as a defense attorney, uh, I would be looking at three things. One, how can I create error in the record? And what that means translated for our audience is, how do I make the judge make a mistake that's going to allow me to get this case reversed on appeal if my client's found guilty? That's always something you're looking for. The second thing is the defense has to convince one of the jurors that this prosecution did not prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. If that juror is strong enough, then the prosecution cannot get a unanimous verdict. If they can't get a unanimous verdict, and if it's the jury is deadlocked, even if it's 11 to 1, then the judge must declare a mistrial, and the prosecution would then have a choice of whether to try the case all over again a second time. Defense attorneys are counting on the prosecution probably won't do that, so the defendant will walk away with a much lesser offense. The third way defendant can win is have that have one or two or three members of the jury so strong that they can convince the jury that the defendant is not guilty. And then there would have to be a unanimous verdict for not guilty. But the defense really has three tactics that the, the defense can take. Now, in this particular case, uh, the defense, you and I talked about this, Judge, is, is the defense could have tried to demonize George Floyd make him uh, the bad guy, and therefore take away some of the presumption of guilt uh, uh, on the officer Chauvin. They could not do that because of the great job the prosecution did in setting up George Floyd as a human being and as, as all the other people who witnessed this all the emotion that went with that. So that took away one of the cards that the defense could have played. Uh, do you think thing, it was for lack of trying, though? Do you think that, that they did not I, at least attempt? I, I, I don't think that they thought that that was their strong suit. Okay. Uh, I really don't. They, they also wanted to go after the medical evidence. They saw that as the weak link. And so the expert that the defense presented came up with this, the fact that carbon monoxide may have been the cause of death and not 
necessarily the the knee on on the neck. Now, that did two things. The defense wanted to raise doubt as to the cause of death, but two, it put the prosecution in a bind. The prosecution had had laboratory evidence that that wasn't the fact, but the prosecution didn't present that laboratory evidence in its direct medical testimony. So then the prosecution, after the defense had rested, tried to get the expert to come, their expert to come back on the stand and bring in that scientific data. The judge wouldn't allow him to do that, but did allow the the expert to testify, and it basically said that the uh, the carbon monoxide was was a non-issue. But what the defense was trying to do is get the judge to make a mistake on allowing certain testimony, and that mistake could have been fatal, could have caused a mistrial right there, or it could have been grounds for appeal. Now, the final thing that the defense had to determine, and this, I think, was taken away from them by the prosecution, and I'd like to know what you think of this, Gail, is that the defendant always has a right to testify or not to testify, and the jury will be instructed by the judge that they can't assume anything from the fact that the defendant did not testify. But in reality, it's always the biggest issue for a defense attorney and a defendant. Do we put the defendant on the stand? In this case, they debated and debated from the news accounts for hours and hours and hours, even up to the last minute, whether it was appropriate to put Chauvin on the stand. They chose not to do that. Whenever, as a defense attorney, you cannot put your you cannot put your client, your defendant, on the stand. It puts you at a marked disadvantage. But they would have put Chauvin on the stand, and the prosecution would have battered them with all of this other testimony that was already in the record that the other police officers said that what Chauvin did was inappropriate. So the defense had certain strategies, but I think by and large, the prosecution took most of those strategies away. I absolutely agree. Um, And as to your last point with regard to the defendant's Fifth Amendment right to um, remain silent, Notwithstanding all of the commentary, I think that you and I could agree based on our um, our years of practice and, and what we've seen. I believe that I, I knew probably from opening statements that the defendant would never testify. Oh, I, I assume that as well. There, and, and if I were wrong, I probably would have been ready to surrender my bar card. <laughs> but I could not imagine any circumstance given the n- nature, the volume, and um, the sheer emotional impact of the evidence as it had come in, mm-hmm. even to the degree that the prosecutor's star medical witness had testified. I mean, to the point where, you know, 
the the doctor who who essentially wrote what the the, the Bible on breathing. Right. Right. The doctor literally took the jury to school to the extent that, you know, the, the doctor had them touching the important parts of their body so that they could understand where he was talking about on their own bodies and how he was explaining, you know, the, the struggle for oxygen and how the body naturally works to fight to get breath, that there was no way as a, a, there's no way that any advocate for a client, I believe, would reasonably allow their client to take the witness stand after that, after all of that cumulative testimony. What would have been gained compared to what would have been lost? There, there's no comparison. What would would have been lost would have been much greater. There's nothing to gain. And given the fact that, again, under those circumstances, can you imagine the number of days he would have been on the witness stand? There's no way that the defendant would have been on the witness stand for merely one day. No, no. That testimony would have been elongated and protracted because if you'll also recall, remember this trial began with multiple witnesses walking in and as you said, setting the stage, laying the foundation emotionally. And that jury... If they are nothing, they are human beings and they have taken the pulse of the room. And I'm willing to bet donuts to dollars that that jury could also tell that for every prosecution witness that came in and testified first and emotionally and struggled, that they noted what the emotional response was or wasn't from the defendant. And if you put a defendant on the stand, given the cumulative evidence that has been provided so far, whether, and that's not necessarily indicative of guilt or innocence, it's indicative of humanity. Yeah. And if you put a defendant on the stand after all of that, and you have a defendant watch themselves and still have no effect, flat affect. Yeah. Imagine the impact on 12 jurors. Well, I think from a defense standpoint, it was the right decision not to to put him on the stand. I, I'm going to be interested, and I want to move on to, to something else, but I'm going to be interested a, in listening to closing arguments on, on Monday. The prosecution has the right to go first, then the defense. And I and bet you the there'll be a rebuttal. And rebuttal. The prosecution comes back with rebuttal, yes. and that's going to tie it up. And I would uh, like to say, just for the for the benefit of those listening, the the reason why the process works that way with the prosecution speaking first and the defense speaking second and the prosecution then returning with what's called rebuttal, which is their second and last opportunity to speak to the jury is not because they are favored more than the defense, not because the judge likes the prosecution better than the defense, not because 
the law favors the prosecution over the defense. But because the law understands that the prosecution's burden is so much heavier, and because, as Judge Tom said, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, not beyond all doubt, but beyond a reasonable doubt, each and every essential element of each and every crime that has been alleged. And because they have such a heavy burden, the prosecution can speak first and they can speak last. It does not guarantee a conviction, but what it does is it seeks to provide the prosecution the tools that are justly needed in order to carry their burden. Judge, we have about 10 minutes left, and I, I'm going to ask the, the, the question that, you know, only you can answer. And, and I want to depict for our audience, especially our, our white audience, the impact that this trial has had on the African-American community and communities of color throughout the country. The emotional trauma, perhaps, is the right word that this has imparted. I'll begin by saying, the at the beginning of the trial, um, without mistake, it has been trauma relived. As the trial has continued, it has been compounding trauma. And the reason is just because um, we can't even get to the verdict without there being just more and more and more. And so it's, without oversimplifying this, it is as if you have experienced the loss of your spouse. And before you can get to the funeral, you've lost your parent. And before you can plan the funeral of the parent, you've lost your child. And so just as you have now buried your spouse and you're preparing your parent's funeral and you are grappling with your child's loss, you now lose your sibling. And so the loss is so compounding and it just keeps happening over and over. And then on top of all of that, you have the neighbor who, you know, perhaps the neighbor was, you know, kind of hidden saddened for you when you first lost that first loved one. But by the time you get to the loss of the child and the loss of the sibling, they're just telling you, well, you know what? People die. Buck up. Well, you know, I lost my dog last year. I just got a new one. Say hello to Spot. Because to so many others, it is truly and it truly feels like an outside looking in when inside your home everyone else is 
working so very hard to keep it together. And every time your phone rings, you are now deathly afraid to answer it because it may be news of another loss. That's how you feel when you turn on the television. That's how you feel when you send your loved one to the grocery store. That's how you feel when you are just wondering how anybody's doing. That's how it just hurts. And it's hurting inside of a community just like never before. And these aren't new losses because the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, black and brown and even poor people, underrepresented folks are just getting abused and brutalized every single day. And there are those who could care less. I'll tell you just briefly about an experience I had just here in my own backyard. And I was just beside myself. You know, municipal courts, much like Dante Wright, you know, they, they're, yeah. you know, we, we issue warrants. And I had a, you know, during this pandemic, I had a young lady who, and I think there's no safer thing you can do, folks. And I'm going to tell you, there's no safer thing that you shouldn't be able to do than to just surrender on it. If you believe you have a warrant, then surrender because that limits the likelihood that you'll encounter the police on the street. So if you can go to a police department or if you can go to a courthouse, if you believe you have a warrant, See if you can just show up, tell them, hey, listen, I'm here. I want to surrender it. Please recall the warrant. That way they should be able to take it out of the system and you should not no longer have that worry. I extend that to anybody who ever has a warrant in my court. I had a young lady who showed up to the, our local police department to do just that. Why? Because people are afraid. She shows up to do that and she has a bond that she has to pay. So she shows up, Judge Tom, with a money order to pay her oh, bond yeah. amount. Yeah. All the police have to do is take the money order, put it in a cash box and release her warrant. And the police department refused to accept her money order. Refused to accept her money order. A money order. Refuse <laughs> a money order. Not a check, not, not a, a credit check. card, a money nothing. Order. A money order that was already filled out. They refused to accept her money order. They refused to release her warrant. Of course, this young lady was black. She had already been cited by the same police department and she's doing the safest thing she could ever do, which is show up and surrender. Why? Because she doesn't want to get pulled over. She's watching the TV like everybody else, right? And if she, even if she doesn't get pulled over in this community, as long as she's got an outstanding warrant, any police department anywhere who sees that warrant out, she knows she could very well end up as the next news story, right? Go sideways. So she's doing what she thinks is right. They won't take her money order. They won't release her warrant. They send her right out the door with her warrant still active. Luckily, somehow my chief bailiff finds out after he's up in arms because this is the job of the police department. And he calls and he says, Judge, can we do something? And I said, you know what? Release the warrant. Tell her to, to, you know what? Just hold on to her money order. Just give her a personal bond. She at least tried. 
It's clear she's it's a low level nonviolent offense. It's obvious she wants to take care of it. She who else shows up if they don't want to take care of it? Right. But what I don't want her doing is I don't want her walking out here afraid that she's going to end up with a negative encounter with the police department somewhere because she's trying to do the right thing. On the street, not in in the office. Precisely. And this is, again, this is why we're leaving predominantly black and brown communities distrustful of an entire justice system and police departments and fearful of their lives. Because you you can't even walk in with a money order so that you can go home safe. And when we stop doing basic stuff like that, then yes, everybody becomes accountable. And this is how courts can do their part. Even when other justice system partners fail, because the in this instance with Dante Wright, he's not the only actor. The police didn't issue that warrant. That warrant had to come from someplace. Police get their instructions from someplace. They're acting out on instructions that came from someplace. That means everybody's got to do their part. Judge, we have about five minutes left, and and I want to circle back to the 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 case that's going to the jury here uh, next day or so. Um, what verdict is satisfactory if if the jury comes back with a not guilty on the murder but a guilty on manslaughter um does that matter what talk about the verdicts here and the expectations so i genuinely believe that just as we do here on our podcast that what is going to be necessary is whatever verdict particularly if there is a guilty verdict on any of the charges, that there has to be education around what that guilty verdict means for that charge. Because emotions are running so very high that managed expectations around whatever the outcome is, I think will help to tampen down the response, if that's necessary. I don't know what is sufficient. Justice is sufficient. And if you saw, you know, I I mean, there are those who are still holding their breath because quite frankly, there are so many who don't believe that there's going to be any justice, that killing black and brown folk indiscriminately is still the rule of the day. And that the reverse is not true. And that, you know, police, when they put that, you know, uniform on, that they are, you know, they, they it might as well be you know, a robe in a hood because they can get away with it and they're never going to be held accountable. And I believe that getting to these steps where there's, you know, the actual process of holding them accountable in the same justice system as everybody else is, that that truly is a step forward. It's a step forward that we hadn't seen before. It's getting over the finish line that is going to be necessary. But quite frankly, most people don't really understand the legal intricacies and even the um, permutations between a murder charge and a manslaughter. And so for us, you and I, we know the difference, but many do not. They don't know what the sentencing structures are for those two charges. 
They know that one may sound more serious than the other, but they don't particularly know what it takes to bound a legal hurdle of one versus another and therefore which one is which one satisfies them emotionally versus another. And so what the outcome is, I think is going to take the trusted voices and communities to come out and to educate people and say, hey, listen, the jury found this and this is what that means. And so we respect the will of the jurors, because this is what it means that they found, and this is what the outcome is. Now, here's the deal is yes, there are those who will say, you know what? If the shoe were on the other foot and it was one of us, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't take all of this. We would have been found guilty probably right there on the street. And there's again perhaps some truth to that. Just like you said, if it were you driving with an expired tag and had been pulled over, you probably would have been, you know, given, you know, a, a, a nice little admonition and sent on your way. We know the rules aren't the same. It takes time to change them. And all of this in the backdrop of the disparities between the handling of the January 6th uh, incursion into the Capitol and the way people were handled there compared to the way people of color are handled on the street. Um, that's a different topic for a different day, but something I think we need to delve into as we look at this whole issue of race and racism and how it rears its head in, in ways that some people don't, don't notice right away. Don't we know it? And again, and there are still those who would firmly deny that there's any disparity in how our government responded to those who protested for the equal treatment of blacks in our justice system versus those who sieged our nation's capital. Different topic, and I hope you'll come back, and I hope we can talk about that and bring some other guests in to talk about further issues of race and racism. It's, it's important to have these conversations uh, and uh, we want to have a forum to do that. I definitely know that we, we're doing the right thing by having these conversations and so many others. That's how we continue to move the ball forward by doing something. Thank you. Judge, uh, let's talk again after the verdict and uh, we'll uh, sort of dissect uh, things from, from that point forward. Maybe we become the trusted voice and maybe we become the ones who educate. Let's, let's hope we can. Thank you, Judge. Thank you. Today, we were joined by Judge Gail Williams Byers, a current judge and former prosecutor. We talked about the George Floyd killing and the trial of police officer Derek Chauvin. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. 
If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.